Gospels of 2 Chronicles 13, 2 Chronicles 13. And tonight's message is about the foolishness of separating from God. The foolishness of separating from God. And if you remember the last time we were together, uh, or First King, I'm sorry, in uh, chapter 12 of 2 Chronicles, Jeroboam's idolatrous system of worship was soon condemned here by a prophet of the Lord, Abijah. This man's experiences point out the evil of what Jeroboam did and how deceptive what he did was. And then the prophet Abijah, though, he himself falls into a trap. After Rehoboam's death, his son Abijah came to the throne. And even though Abijah isn't considered a good king, we do read of an experience where he honored the Lord here. Now, he didn't have a solid walk with the Lord. And Abijah committed a lot of sins. And in 1 Kings 15, 3, it says he walked in all the sins of his father and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God. Abijah was a wicked king. But the writer of Chronicles chose to show the little good that he did in order to show that he was still under God's covenant promise to David, which shows God's faithfulness. And because of Abijah's passionate speech to Jeroboam, we'll see here in verses 4 through 12, he was spared from the immediate consequences of sin. And the whole chapter gives us several lessons why. So let's begin in chapter 13 now with verses 1 through 3. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. And there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah set the battle in order with an army of valiant warriors, or 400,000 choice men. Jeroboam also drew up in battle in, uh, formation against him with 800,000 choice men, mighty men of valor. In verses 1 through 3, we see the foolishness of fighting God. The first thing that we read about here was the reign of Abijah. And in his reign, there was war between him and Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the king of the northern tribes of Israel. Abijah began to rule over Judah in the 18th year of Jeroboam's reign in Israel. And he reigned in Jerusalem for three years. Now, Abijah's mother's name was Micaiah. Now, in other places in Scripture, you see that it's Micah. It's spelled differently, but it's still the same person. The, and, and she was the daughter of Uriel. Now, she was the granddaughter, granddaughter of Absalom, but they really don't have a term in Hebrew for granddaughter. So they say the daughter of Absalom through Uriel. Now, let's look at Abijah's passionate speech to, Jeru to Jeroboam in verses 4 through 12. And he begins, Then Abijah stood on Mount Zemaram, which is in the mountains of Ephraim, and he said, Hear me, Jeroboam, and all Israel. Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons, by a covenant of salt? And yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. And he's not talking about the Lord God, but he's talking about Abijah. Uh, then worthless rogues gathered to him and strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and inexperienced and could not withstand them. 
And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hand of the sons of David, and you are a great multitude, and with you are the gold cows which Jeroboam made for you as gods. Have you not cast out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made for yourselves priests like the peoples of other lands, so that whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams may be a priest of things that are not gods? But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. And the priests who minister to the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites attend to their duties. And they burn to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. They also set the showbread in order on the pure gold table and the lampstand of gold with its lamps to burn every evening. For we keep the commandment of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Now look, God himself is with us as our head and his priests with sounding trumpets to sound the alarm against you. O children of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. Thus, again, the title is foolish to fight against God or foolish to separate yourself from God. Abijah's passionate speech to Jeroboam here in verses 4 through 12. Uh, he wasn't just a young and tender hearted uh, king. He was also very foolish. What Abijah was trying to do here was to bring back the ten tribes under his leadership. But there's no use now because Jeroboam has made himself king and he's not about to make peace with Abijah. Abijah addresses Jeroboam here and all Israel from Mount Zerarim in the mountains of Ephraim. And generals would usually lecture their troops before they went into battle. Abijah addresses the enemies like David addressed Goliath before they went into battle and Rabshakeh to the representatives of Hezekiah. Abijah's speech was a long, sincere argument against, and it was also a request for the purpose of changing Jeroboam and his warriors' mind, trying to stop their mad assignment of trying to conquer Judah. That is, he was trying to, Abijah was trying to stop Jeroboam from going to war. Now, according to Abijah, they couldn't succeed. That is, Jeroboam could not win the battle because, you see, of the following reasons. Number one, their rebellion was a sin against their own better knowledge. They knew better. Look what it says in verse 5. Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever? There's no sense in you trying to take dominion, Jeroboam, because God gave it to David forever. To him and his sons by a covenant of salt. So Abijah is saying, do you realize, Jeroboam, that the Lord, the God of Israel... He made a lasting covenant with David. And he gave David and his descendants the throne of Israel forever. You guys know this. You're aware of the covenant. And it was a sin against the knowledge that they had. They knew or they might have known that Jehovah, the God of Israel, had given the kingdom of Israel over to David forever. In other words, to David and to his sons, the, the, the kingdom was given by a covenant of salt. Now, a covenant of salt is an everlasting covenant. Now, and the symbolism is, is that when they would offer the sacrifices, they'd always put salt on the sacrifices as a preservative. Because, you see, they didn't have refrigeration in those days. They'd sprinkle salt on their perishable items to, to keep them from spoiling. So the idea of the covenants of salt was a preserving or a covenant that would never end. It was a continuing covenant, one that was preserved. 
And this promise of an everlasting covenant had been made to David. And it was also confirmed to Solomon. And it was reported to Jeroboam, who must have known that whatever consent he had from God to ascend the throne of Israel, he had no hope whatsoever for taking the throne of Judah. What Abijah said was was true only about the throne of Judah. The sovereignty of undivided Israel was guaranteed to David and his sons on conditions that hadn't been yet fulfilled. What God said about David's throne, we see in, in relies in Christ, to whom the absolute and unbroken reign over God's spiritual Israel has been committed forever by a covenant of salt. God's ne- promise to never leave us nor forsake us, his church. So rebellion against the authority of Christ can't prosper. So to fight against God is foolish. Secondly, another reason they can't win. Verse 6, their rebellion was a revolt against their rightful Lord. Yet Jeroboam, it says in verse 6, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. In other words, Jeroboam, who was just a simple servant of David's son, Solomon, became a traitor to his master. And even though Jeroboam had been told earlier about Jehovah's intention to take the ten tribes from Rehoboam by force, it was still an act of defiance on Jeroboam's part and the Israelites to take it upon themselves to rebel against Solomon's son, Rehoboam. So God's foreknowledge that men will sin. God knows that men will reject Christ. He knows that they will continue in unbelief. That doesn't make them any less uh, guilty. All right, they're responsible. They know for their behavior. Jesus Christ, the son of David, is their rightful sovereign. And to reject his holy authority is to be guilty of spiritual betrayal of the highest degree. So again, I made a a mistake in saying it was Abijah, but it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ here. He's got the ultimate authority. And then third reason that it wouldn't work is verse seven. Notice the rebellion was encouraged by wicked men. Notice, it says in verse 7, Then worthless rogues gathered to him. That is, a whole gang of scoundrels joins Jeroboam. Jeroboam had gathered around him an army of worthless men. That's what the word scoundrels means in the old King James. Wicked men, like the men Abimelech had hired to follow him on an earlier occasion in Judges 9. They were children of Belial, or worthless, evil men, like those who attacked the house of Jason in Acts chapter 17. Men who had no principles and even characters or men and even evil, uh, evil characters. They were men without understanding, education or common sense. So it was impossible that their wicked, pros- their wicked project to take over Judah would prosper. Psalm 1, 6 says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Fourth. Their rebellion was made worse by the time it had been thought up and carried out. That's why it wouldn't be successful. Because it was at a time, this rebellion was at a time when Jeroboam wasn't able to handle them. He was new at this king's stuff. He had just taken the throne, and as a result, he wasn't ready when it happened. And verse 7 says, And strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam, notice, was young and inexperienced, and he could not withstand them. So Abijah speaks of Rehoboam as having been, at the time of Jeroboam's rebellion, he was young and inexperienced. But Rehoboam was 41 years old at the time. 
And Abijah's purpose in saying this may have been to refer to his own experience as a king, which made him vulnerable to being misled by deceitful men or to the instability of the weakness of his throne, which would naturally encourage the enemies, you know, if they were when they were watching to attack him. They would see that he was weak in the experience and it would encourage them to attack him. Look at verse eight now. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hand of the sons of David, and you are a great multitude, and with you are the gold calves which Jeroboam made for you as gods. So Abijah says, so you think you can withstand the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hands of David? He says, yeah, you might have a huge army, but you have the gold calves that Jeroboam made for you as gods. Do you really think you can stand against the kingdom of the Lord that's led by the descendants of David? Yeah, your army is huge, but you have those gold cows with you again that, that you know, Jeroboam made. Jeroboam's army was cursed because, you see, of the gold cows that they carried around with them. You see, it's like they had to put their sin in some kind of physical form so that they could carry it around with them. So Jeroboam was cursed from the beginning. We have to think carefully about the things that we really treasure. Because if you really value anything more than God, that becomes your golden calf. And someday it will drag you down. Let go of anything that interferes with your relationship with God. Verse 9. Have you not cast out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made for yourselves priests like the peoples of other lands so that whoever comes to concentrate him, consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams may be a priest of the things that are not God's? Abijah here criticizes Jeroboam's low standards, the low qualifications for making priests. He says here, have you not cast out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites? And you've made for yourselves priests, just like the peoples of the heathen lands. So that whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams may be a priest of things that are not God's. Abijah says, you guys have chased away the priests of the Lord and the Levites. And you've appointed your own priests, just like the pagan nations. He says, you just let anybody be a priest these days. Anyone is anyone, he says. In your eyes is qualified to represent a God that's not a God, a God that's worthless. So he says, any man who comes to consecrate himself can be a priest, you know, but they're a priest of things that, that aren't God's. They're priests that aren't really priests because they're not of God and they're serving gods. They're not gods. What a waste. But to, re to represent the God, Lord God Almighty, a person has to live by God's standards and not man's. And those who are appointed to positions of responsibility in the church of Jesus Christ, they shouldn't be selected because they volunteer, because they're influential or well-educated or any other you know, worldly qualification. Again, it can be helped, but the main qualification better be the calling of God in that person's life. And instead, they should demonstrate sound doctrine, commitment, dedication to God, and a strong spiritual character. Titus 2, 7 through 8 says, In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Notice, in doctrine, showing integrity, 
reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned. God holds us to high qualifications in the ministry. Abijah was not successful in trying to stop them, Jeroboam and his army, from going to war. Maybe he thought he would be. Maybe he thought by talking to them and bringing up these things, he could stop them. But you see, when men have thought about being disloyal or disobedient to the point where they're guilty of actual rebellion or or opposition, they're not often persuaded even by the most convincing and persuasive words. But again, we should still always try to stop them before resorting to violent measures. And in this case, it was war because we could be successful in avoiding bloodshed. So again, we should oppose them. Those that you know, are violent and want to go to war, we should oppose them as strongly as we can. How? By doing it as quickly as we can. Also, without having a provoking tone, also in a respectful attitude and not done in our emotions that only stirs up hatred, also with a feeling that our fellowship together is more important than our own personal interests. Verses 10 through 12. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken Him, and the priests who minister to the Lord are the sons of Aaron and the Levites, attend to their duties. And they burn to the Lord every morning and every evening, burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. They also set the showbread in order on the pure gold table and the lampstand of gold with its lamps to burn every evening. For we keep the command of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Now look, God himself is with us as our head and his priests with sounding trumpets to sound the alarm against you. O children of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper jesus has taught us that in the great spiritual warfare that we're fighting you can't be neutral you can't take a neutral place jesus said he that is not with the lord is against him so you see we have to include among those who come against jesus christ not not just those that that come against him but those who deny him by speaking evil of him those who degrade him those who refuse to recognize the the great commands that that he he makes upon us and and in our worship. Now, the obedience that we are to have toward him and then lowering him to the level of an imperfect human teacher. Those who are totally without concern for his demands, those who show total disregard for his will, those who are outside the church, those who do things specifically condemned or forbidden, all of those are the enemies of Christ. And you know what? There are a lot of them. And you know what? They have a lot of resources. And they make up an overwhelming army and they're strong in numbers and they have material instruments to be used against God. But again, to these, these, these enemies of Christ, Jesus sends the prophets, the ministers, to, 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 to preach to them, to proclaim the gospel to them. And he calls them to leave their position where they stand against him and to surrender themselves to him and to serve only him. Now, these spokesmen for God, those, those proclaiming the gospel, those spokesmen for God, they plead with them, the enemies of Christ, to put down their, their, their spiritual weapons or their physical weapons in order to serve Christ, to be under his leadership. And then there are at least four reasons for surrender. To do what they're doing is, number one here, to be overthrowing what their fathers have built up. 
Verse 12 says, notice, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers. Wait long and patiently with a lot of prayers. And as often as you have to, even in the face of the most determined opposition, wait long and patiently and pray. And in health and in sickness, in youth, in strength and weakness, in old age, even to death. He's saying our fathers fought for the truth that they loved. They built up the church, the foundation of the church, the Christian stronghold where we find ourselves, where we found ourselves. Remember, when we became aware of our need for Jesus Christ. It's because of them that we were able to find, again, Christ in our life. And and are we going to knock down that sacred building that, that they raised up? Are we going to destroy it with our hands? Are we okay with lowering the flag that they held up so highly and they fought so hard for? Will we be the ones to undo the great and long results of their hard work over the centuries? And will we disgrace the name that they honored more than their own? Will we fight against the Lord God of our fathers? Also, to be opposing what good men are working hard to keep going. God's priests, it says in verse 12, notice, they sound the alarm against you. The righteous in the land are urging the people to hold their ground. Don't give in. Don't give up the fight. The work for Christian truth, man, in these, it's led by a whole bunch of good people, a whole bunch of, of, of good, holy men and women. And they're calling on all those who love their God and their fellow men to stand up against Christ's enemies. But you see, if we associate ourselves with the Lord's enemies, you need to know that you'll end up fighting against the Lord and against the Lord's best and most devoted people that ever sounded the call to battle. Also, to be fighting against God, it says in verse 12, God himself is with us as our leader. We can't fight, we can't be successful, we can't fight against God because God himself is with us as our leader, Abijah said. And in the church of Jesus Christ, we have the confident assurance that our Lord is with us in every battle. He said himself, lo, I am with you always. Isaiah 43, 2 and 3, it says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, God said. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you, for I, the Lord, am your God. We see in Joshua 1, 5, God said, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. God speaking to Joshua, As I was with Moses, I will be with you, Joshua. I will not leave you nor forsake you. 1 Kings eleven thirty eight. Then it shall be. If, notice the condition, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then, then I will be with you. Notice the conditions. And those who fight for him, fight for his work, for his, for his, his ministry. Okay, they, they, they fight for him. And they're, under his, they're also under his care. They're under his all-seeing eye. They're under his direction. They're guided by his hand. And those who fight against, those who are, are come against the Lord, they have to, those who, who come against the Lord, they have to fight against the Almighty God. Fourth, we see to fight against a power that has to be victorious. To fight against a power that has to be victorious. Verse 12 says, you shall not prosper. When you fight against God, You fight against a power that won't be victorious. God's side will. You can't win. 
There's been so many times when it seems like Christianity was doomed to defeat, even extinction. But it's come out victorious every single time in every single battle, and it will come out victorious every single time. Persecution over the centuries, ridicule, contention, hostility, corruption, hate. Look at the crucifixion. That was man's best effort at ridding the world of Christ. It failed. It will always fail. Whatever the world brings against Christ, it will fail. It's a losing battle. But th- and those who are at war with Christ, and there's many, we can see it all around us today. And those who are trying to weaken Christ's influence, and those who disrespect his perfect will, those who oppose his commands, and the, and the, the loving invitations of the Lord God to surrender to him, they're the ones that will be defeated. They'll never hear his voice of victory when they're dying. They have no hope whatsoever of hearing praise from their master, nor will they ever receive a reward from him. Verses 13 through 14. But Jeroboam caused an ambush to go around behind them so that they were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked around to their surprise, the battle line was at both front and rear and they cried out to the Lord and the priests sounded the trumpets. So here was the ambush by Jeroboam against Abijah. This ambush was skillfully prepared by Jeroboam. And remember, he represents the enemy. The enemy is skillful. Wicked men, wicked men often have great talent. We see them in powerful positions today. Wicked men have dangerous ideas. They make great generals, politicians, successful merchants, leaders. While Abijah was making this great speech in verses 4 through 12, even if his army was praying, and even if they were preaching, wouldn't be enough if they weren't watching. You see, even if we carry out every duty that God gives us seriously and completely, if If we're not watching and planning, uh, 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 those things aren't going to help us. We can't imagine that that caution, planning, and watchfulness aren't duties as well as praying and preaching and and, and doing good. And it was all around Judah. Abijah wasn't aware of the craftiness of his enemy. He wasn't aware of that. Because he had been so preoccupied with this fiery speech to Jeroboam that he was giving in verses 4 through 12 that his generals and his soldiers weren't on the alert. That wasn't good. Even if they were listening to their their king's moving speech. We have to be alert. We have to observe what's going on around us. As Abijah was giving his speech, Jeroboam surrounded Abijah and his army. And even though Abijah was involved in what might be called a a religious duty, he was trying to avoid the tragedy of war. He was trying to promote peace. Always keep in mind, so does the devil. Usually choose the moment when Jesus' servants are involved in some godly service to trap him. But the attack by Jeroboam was courageously met by Abijah and his men. Though Abijah and his men were surprised, caught off guard, they didn't panic. They realized the danger that they were in, and they they met it head on. 
They met the danger with faith. And it says in verse 12, they cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord, who they believed to be their captain, their leader. And this is a great lesson for us, the church. That is, together as a church and individually. Which even though people profess and consider Jesus to be their captain, they don't always go to him for help. No, they don't always go to him in, in, in times of trouble. They go down to Egypt, which God said never do to his people, which is a type of the world. They go down to Egypt. Again, they resort to worldly strategy. They resort to man's wisdom or material support and man's protection. They took on this battle with hope. The priests sounded their trumpets, and by doing so, they were showing that they expected to win. And so the church of Christ should never enter the battle either against their enemies in doubt. We know that Paul said we are more than conquerors. We should always be confident in our battles in spirit, expecting to be winners, to come out victorious. Psalm 60, 12, the psalmist said, through God, we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. Romans 8, 37, Paul said, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors and through through him who loved us. They also met this battle with spirit. It says the men of Judah gave a shout. They didn't just sound their war trumpets, but they shouted like men fighting to win, like soldiers shout when they rush into battle. And you know what? So should the church of Jesus Christ. We should show our confident expectancy of winning the battles that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, faith is what brings us success. And when it was all over here, the faithfulness, so far as, uh, as the obedience of, uh, of Abijah was concerned, it brought them the victory. Look at verses through 15 through 20 now. Then the men of Judah gave a shout. And as the men of Judah shouted, notice, it happened that God struck Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And the children of Israel fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hand. Then Abijah and his people struck them with a great slaughter. So 500,000, notice, 500,000 choice men of Israel fell slain. Thus the children of Israel were subdued at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed because, notice, because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. And Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took cities from him, Bethel with its villages, Jeshunah with its villages, and Ephraim with its villages. So Jeroboam did not recover strength again in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him, and he died. What was the source of the victory of Judah? It wasn't Abijah. It wasn't Judah. It was God. God struck Jeroboam and all of Israel. You see, deliverance is of the Lord. He's the one who gives salvation. That is deliverance to the kings. We read that, that, that in Exodus that Miriam sang, The Lord is a man of war. David confessed that he teaches my hands to make war in Proverbs 18 and my fingers to battle in Psalm 144. Look at the time of the victory. It says, in, uh, and the psalmist says in Psalm 145, 18, When the men of Judah begin to shout, So the Lord is near to all who call upon him. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved or delivered. Joel 2.32 Even you know, while they're still calling out, God comes to their rescue. It tells us that in Isaiah, Isaiah 65.24 
And then we see the basis for their victory. Verse 18, because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. You see, God proved to be a buckler to them. A shield that trusted him because they trusted in the sword of Jehovah more than in their own weapons. And in the same way, that's how David prevailed over Goliath. That's how Hezekiah prevailed over the Syrian king. And and that's how the Reubenites prevailed over the Hagarites. You see, it's confidence in God, which is the strongest hope and guarantee that we have as a Christian of becoming a conqueror in any moral spiritual battle. And then we see here the extent of the battle. Jeroboam's army was defeated big time, it says in verses 15 and 16. Think of it, half a million chosen men of war were killed. 500,000. More than half of Jeroboam's whole army was wiped out. He started with 800,000. The kingdom of Israel, according to verse 18, was completely defeated. Their ability to trouble Israel, Jeroboam and Israel's ability to trouble Israel, no more. It had been seriously weakened. Seriously weakened. Several cities with their surrounding areas, it says, were captured. Bethel and its villages, Jeshanah and its villages, its surrounding villages, Ephraim and its surrounding villages. And it says in verse 20 that Jeroboam never again recovered strength. He outlived the war by several years, Abijah by two years. But the decisive defeat that he had suffered, that Jeroboam suffered, left him crippled and, and a rather feeble ruler. Here's the closing lessons to be learned in this chapter. First of all, the sinfulness of uncalled for rebellion. It's a sin to rebel against God. Secondly, the horrors of war. You know, there's bloodshed. there's, there's, There's damage that's done. There's ruin. Third, the political value of religion. That is, Abijah, you know, was with the Lord. Therefore, he won the victory. The power of faith, that's what brought him the victory. The penalty of sin. Jeroboam, again, defeated big time and never recovered. And when we read the Chronicles about these two kingdoms, it's surprising to see that kings and the people, that the kings and the people, they failed to see that when they were obedient to Jehovah, they prospered. And then when they were disobedient, their nation suffered a disaster. And they failed to see this. And here's why. Because a lot of times, it's a lot easier to recognize other people's duty than our own. You see, to see, whether others, to see where others messed up, hey, I can point it out in a minute. <laughs> but to see where I messed up, I don't see it that clearly. We're continually tempted to forget about God's way of doing things because there's a way that I want to do it that that fascinates me. But in the end, it's nothing but sorrow and disappointment. I can't win. And many times, God's path that he has for us, it doesn't seem to be very appealing. It's not very attractive. It's not very exciting or promising in my eyes when I first look. You know, the scripture says that, you know, there is a way that seems right to man, but the end of it is death. 
And so many times God's path that he puts us on, it's not that exciting. We're not all all that excited to get get on that path and follow it. But understand, it's in the Lord's way where you're going to be successful, where you're going to find success. And as you go on that path, you continue on that path, the prospect of success gets brighter and brighter. And when it's all over, guess what? There's victory and there's joy. We need to be faithful to the end. And if we are, we can be absolutely sure of receiving the crown of life. Father, thank you so much for your word, Lord. We thank you for the lessons that are found, God, in this, in this chapter, Lord. And as always, God, may we take from these lessons, God. And God, they're given to us not just to receive information, but God, to be, receive transformation, Lord. God, may we be transformed every day by the word of God. Lord, may we apply the things that we learn to our life, God. That we can become more and more Christ-like, God. That, God, we can have victory over our, our trials and our tribulations, Lord. Father, that we would be, like I said, more and more like Jesus Christ. That's, that's the goal of being a Christian. He's our standard. He's the one that that we're to emulate. And so, Father, help us to do that through the teaching of your word, Lord. May we desire, Lord, to be more like Jesus. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Christ. And you've separated yourself from God. And if you don't know, you are separated from him. Because your sins have separated you from him. Because sinful man cannot have fellowship with a holy God. It's only through Jesus Christ and his salvation that he brings us that we can approach God. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray a simple prayer of faith together. Mm-hmm.